Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Reproductive labor is the labor or work of creating and maintaining the next generation of workers. This is the work of birth, breastfeeding or bottle feeding, washing dirty butts and wiping runny noses, nursing those who are unable to care for themselves, keeping living areas habitable by washing and getting rid of refuse, and figuring out where to get water or where to put trash if you're not living with modern conveniences. Uh, includes cooking, including the sourcing, storing, and knowledge of food production so that you don't make people ill. All of the things that humans rely on, but that either through biology or through gendered norms are the domain of women. And yes, trans men and non-binary folks can give birth. But today we're discussing the history of how reproductive labor was gendered as women's work, the continuity of the undervaluation of reproductive labor within capitalism, and how this undervaluing contributes to the implications of gendered labor. Put more bluntly, capitalism is dependent on undervalued reproductive and gendered labor, and we're going to explore that history a bit in this episode. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Can you believe it's been six years since we announced the launch of Dig? We wouldn't have come this far or kept at it if it wasn't for 
you all, our listeners. We're thankful for all of our listeners, new and returning, overseas and domestic, student in college or student of life. We're especially thankful for the patrons of the show who funded our presentations at conferences, the new equipment we're recording on right now, and our endless book needs for research. A big thanks to our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons, Hannah, Carl, Colin, Denise, Jessica, Edward, Lauren, Karen, Iris, Susan, Maria, and Lisa. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode, like all of our episodes, relies on the scholarship of other historians. The reading list is considerable on this one, and notes and a larger bibliography can be found on our website at digpodcast.org. We've peppered in names throughout this episode that we've relied on extensively. So here we are, people, at Continuity, the surprise sixth sea of history. Last year, we did five series, one on each of the original five C's of history that historians Thomas Andrews and Flannery Burke outlined for the American Historical Association's magazine, Perspectives, in 2007. Well, after thinking historically through these lenses all year long, we felt like something was missing, and we decided to write about it. In the March 2024 issue of Perspectives, we proposed that to cultivate historical thinking and grapple with the messiness of history, we need to consider continuity as a sea all on its own. Context, change over time, causality, complexity, and contingency form the foundations of the five C's of historical thinking. And we're adding continuity because we can't talk about change over time without considering the ways that social, economic, political, and cultural forces have often persisted, especially in the lives of the marginalized and the ordinary. Continuity is a central tenet in chronicling the unchange in the status of women, even when celebrating accomplishments. Emphasizing the historical concept of continuity helps contribute to the development of historical empathy, enabling us to understand and to contextualize the past on a personal level. Our purpose today is to try to understand the interconnections between capitalism and gender and how capitalism relies on the undervaluation of gendered labor to keep the massive global engine churning. We'll explore the value of female labor, both reproductive and waged, and the undervaluation of that labor. 
Capitalism was built on the use of reproductive labor from women and or enslaved people, and that system, exploitation of gendered and raced labor, has continued from the 17th century to the present. The gendered and racial distribution of reproductive labor significantly influences our current labor and monetary systems. Within households, women predominantly undertake reproductive labor, with women of color shouldering a disproportionate share of the care work essential for sustaining economies and society at large. Overall, this labor is essential to keep the machine of quote-unquote capitalism running. Now, I know, I know, capitalism as a thing is multifaceted, and it can be analyzed and theorized really until the cows come home. But for argument's sake, and to keep this podcast under the 10-hour mark, we're going to generalize a bit here and define capitalism as a worldwide system based on private ownership of the means of production and their operation for profit. That's a vague textbooky definition and misses a lot of nuance, but for folks revisiting or being exposed to these ideas for the first time, it's a good overview. The dependence on women's reproductive efforts and the historical undervaluation of this labor, both culturally and monetarily, are rooted in foundational concepts such as value, gender, and work that have undergone specific historical transformations, yet retain a measure of continuity, particularly in how women experience it throughout. Women, as economic participants, are often overlooked as significant contributors to major historical movements. They primarily operate within familial networks, and their societal roles are typically defined by their connections with men. Their economic presence is marginalized, relegated to secondary or support roles alongside impoverished men. Although their labor and bodies are subject to commodification, as we'll discuss later, they have not yet significantly altered the overarching economic framework. Scrutinizing the laws, institutions, and mechanisms of capitalism through the perspectives of gender, race, and class exposes how concepts of value and gender evolved into the taken-for-granted forms we know today. The concept of reproductive labor originates from the ideas of Friedrich Engels. He distinguished between the production of goods in the economy and the reproduction of labor power essential for sustaining that productive economy. Over time, the concept has expanded and scrutinized a previously overlooked category of work, women's unpaid labor within the home. This reproductive labor is crucial for the continuous reproduction and upkeep of the productive labor force in society, whether performed in the home or in the marketplace. So like daycares, nursing facilities, laundry services, all of that. In recent years, scholars have engaged in a new history of capitalism that analyzes the intersections of business history, labor history, and political economy that denies the notion that capitalism is an unavoidable or intrinsic framework for organizing markets. And of course, those using gender as a lens of analysis to co-opt Joan Scott's term further complicates this narrative. Women's labor and bodies have always participated in or been forced to participate in capitalism. Enslaved women were treated as commodities for labor, for sexual purposes, and as mothers of future individuals treated as commodities. Slavery was always more than a system of labor. It fueled economies while commodifying bodies into chattel. These enslaved bodies could be moved, used as collateral, and passed down as wealth through legal ownership, i.e. private property, one of the tenets of American quote-unquote freedom. 
Historian Jennifer Morgan demonstrates how enslaved women's reproductive labor played a crucial role in generating wealth for American slaveholders. Even though a majority of scholarship that focuses on slavery has emphasized African men who were captured, it's important to know that most of the people brought to the Americas as captives were African women and children. Morgan shows how assumptions of gender and kin networks formed the identity of enslaved women in the Americas, which was shaped by their common roles as agricultural workers and mothers. Enslaved women were required to work on plantations to support the plantation economy while also fulfilling their duties as mothers. The stool roles shaped their identities, with their worth often determined by their ability to have and raise children who could benefit their owners financially. Additionally, enslaved women formed close bonds within their communities, offering each other emotional support, childcare, and assistance. These networks helped them cope with the challenges of slavery and fostered a sense of unity and belonging. Furthering this new analysis of capitalism, Sven Beckert and Seth Rockman's collection of articles in Slavery's Capitalism completely dismantles any notion that slavery, particularly in the U.S. South, was a pre-capitalist or pre-market system. They argue that, quote, only in the past several years has scholarship on finance, accounting, management, and technology allowed us to understand American economic development as, quote unquote, slavery's capitalism. And only now is there enough momentum to leverage some basic facts that slave grown cotton was the most valuable export made in America that the capital stored in slaves exceeded the combined value of all the nation's railroads and factories, that foreign investment underwrote the expansion of plantation lands in Louisiana and Mississippi, that the highest concentration of steam power in the United States was to be found along the Mississippi rather than on the Merrimack, into a fundamental rethinking of American history itself, end quote. Similarly, historian Caitlin Rosenthal traces the innovations of modern management to the slave plantation, where regimentation and violence allowed for experiments in accounting that predated the factory and the railroad. Rosenthal is among several scholars who have urged the centrality of slavery in the histories of management and accounting, thus making enslaved bodies and the reproductive capacities of enslaved women integral to the complexity of the emerging capitalist system. And of course, all this wealth was possible because of the reproductive labor of enslaved women. Historian Adrian D. Davis describes slavery as a sexual political economy, clearly revealing the links between markets, labor organization, and sexual exploitation. Terming slavery as a sexual political economy emphasizes its gender hierarchies and systems of subordination. Additionally, it highlights how slavery provides early examples of the social construction and flexibility of gender, challenging the idea of a strict division between public and private relationships. So more plainly, sex was considered something private, yet the commodification of enslaved women's bodies and the commodification of their offspring meant that sex became public. This further erased the womanhood of enslaved women, gendering them as sexless, even as their sex was commodified. Studying the lives of free women and the changes happening in how we think about worth, gender, and work during the 18th and 19th centuries show us how these ideas turned into what we now accept as normal in today's society. 
Jean Boydston's classic Home and Work shows how reproductive labor became devalued in American economies. Boydston shows that a capitalist economic order had to first teach that wages were the measure of a man's worth. Right. An important point to be aware of is that in the 18th century, white Europeans, including colonists in the Americas, assumed that a person who worked for someone was not someone that was free to make political or economic decisions. That's why voting in America originally had property qualifications. They assumed that if one did not own the production of labor, they were tainted and unworthy of a decision such as the vote. In effect, they were feminized. This is also why women were not granted the vote, because they didn't own land outright. But instead, through the English common law practice of coverture, their lands became their husbands. They didn't have the qualifications of a quote-unquote free individual. There were exceptions to this, widows who inherited property, single propertied women who were never married, women who exploited loopholes in the law to transfer their property to female relatives before marrying. But in effect, the hoops these women had to jump through to be able to own property, let alone to participate in local government, just proved the rule. So this meant that the wages earned in a market economy had to somehow be masculinized to have any kind of real value. Uh, thus, they had there had to be kind of a counterbalance that made the understanding real. Those that did not draw wages were dependent and not essential to the real economy, right? So this is all kind of ideology, right? And in a market economy, women's reproductive labor wasn't waged like men's participation in early industrialization. Reproductive labor, so especially that care work in households, wasn't worth anything in this waged system. Of course, there were some domestic work that was compensated, but for jobs that were feminized, so maids and cooks, for example, they were compensated less than the similar or same jobs that were masculinized, butlers and chefs. And significantly, free women's labor within their own household was romanticized and uncompensated entirely. Free middle-class white women became Republican mothers and cultivated companions, which Boydston suggests was a, quote, nostalgic reinterpretation of the increased dependence on their productive labor, right? So basically, women's household duties became labors of love, labors to the new nation, and were given freely. These are all, you know, dripping in sarcasm or quotes, right? Um, and, and because these were, you know, given to the nation freely, right, in this, this care work that they're giving to these baby citizens that they're growing up, there was no need of monetary compensation or any, any even any idea that this was worth something to 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 the nation and to the market and to capitalism, right? It was free and forgotten labor that it was uh, that was though essential to the perpetuation of the new republic. Historian Elizabeth Blackmark gives us just one example of how this worked. She examined the records of two people designated as trustees for an underage family member in New York in the 1820s. One record regarded a woman named Margaret Jones, who was charged with supporting her nieces. Jones presented detailed accounts illustrating how she utilized her deceased brother-in-law's money to support and educate her nieces. She also invested funds in order to provide each young woman with a substantial marriage portion. 
All of this work she did to manage the estate, she did without receiving any payment for her time and ability to grow her and her niece's estate. The court viewed her work as just an outgrowth of the care work Margaret Jones was expected to do as a female relation. In contrast, a man named Frederick de Peister was also put in charge of managing his nieces and nephews' estates. However, instead of investing in the children's schooling and marriage nest eggs, DePeister used his deceased brother's money to purchase rental properties, and he personally profited from rents and commissions. Yet the court found that he had acted above board, and it was his prerogative to do as he saw fit with the funds. The court's response to these two situations made it evident that being a trustee in the 19th century required growing an estate, in this case, their niece or nephew's inheritance, through investment, aligning with the logic of capitalist enterprise. However, gender-related notions influenced the conduct of those entrusted with risking the funds of their charges for preservation. Margaret Jones performed familial duties without compensation, while Frederick de Peister viewed his actions as business deserving fair compensation. And the court agreed. Blackmar uses this as an example to show how lawyers, like a male profession, began to increasingly take on the role of trustee in the early 19th century. This transition from trusteeship seen as care work to trusteeship perceived as business was directly connected to gender and the gendered notions about reproductive labor. Thus, sociopolitical changes in the late 18th century rendered the idea of a working woman as something illogical, something that didn't exist, when, of course, working women absolutely existed. They always had, right? Women's work was made more invisible, and in the New Republic, women working in the public sphere essentially became defined as outside of the bounds of respectable womanhood, um, which was, of course, a negative connotation. Boydston puts it best, stating, quote, Femaleness had been defined successfully as absence from the workplace. Of course, women remained in the labor force, but always on the terms of outsiders having to make anew the case for their seriousness, their respectability, and their economic contribution, end quote. This process of rendering working woman as an oxymoron was well underway in the 19th century when young females began entering the textile mills in Lowell, Massachusetts, marking their entrance into the mills as something critics and policymakers deemed exceptional. Of course, it wasn't exceptional. Women had been working for years, as I will show in my forthcoming episode in this series. The industrialization of the textile industry was already well underway in Britain before Francis Cabot Lowell formed the Boston Manufacturing Company in Massachusetts in 1813. In 1821, Lowell and other business associates created the town of Lowell around Pawtucket Falls on the Merrimack River, and he set out to expand their operation and incorporate all elements of turning raw cotton into cotton cloth in one factory. And this, of course, is opposed to what was known as the Rhode Island system, where only carding and spinning happened in the factory, while the weaving was outsourced to independent weavers. And just as a side note, there's also a story about how these independent weavers, who by the late 18th and early 19th century were all men, 
had been performed mostly by women in the earlier 18th century. So again, an example of household production moving to a specialized and thus waged and more valued male profession, even though both genders were doing the same work. You can learn more about this if you check out Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's chapter in her book, The Age of Homespun, um, yeah, to learn more about that transition. Also, the rise of this cotton textile industry in the northeastern United States fueled African-American slave labor on the cotton plantations in the South. By 1840, the Lowell Mills were employing almost 8,000 workers, with the majority being free white women between the ages of 10 and 35. There were some male employees, but they were hired to oversee the large female labor force. The Lowell system of organizing labor combined large-scale machinery with a moralizing engendered element. In an attempt to avoid the industrialized hellscape that characterized factories in Britain, American entrepreneurs attempted to, quote-unquote, improve its largely female workforce by providing housing, a form of education, and moral suasion. These girls were protected in a boarding school type environment, complete with protective matrons to act as pseudo mothers and and oversee their charges of virtue while providing them a way to earn money before they, it was assumed and expected, married and left the workforce. Because their waged work had been transformed into an anomaly by this point in time, it was unquestioned that their wages would only be half that of what male laborers would earn. They had to pay for their room and board as well. But this was still a lot of money for many women, and it allowed some of them, for the first time in their lives, to exert a modicum of economic independence, even when their typical work week consisted of about 70 to 75 working hours. Remember, this is before any type of labor legislation. Hmm. What is a work week? The largely female labor force was attractive to investors and managers because they could be paid significantly less, which is something I'll talk about in my episode. But we have evidence from as early as 1350 that men and managers expected because it was the custom of the land to be able to pay women less for doing the same jobs as men. And theoretically, women could be controlled in a way that a male labor force could not. However, as early as 1834, in response to a 15% wage cut from their already abysmally low wages, the female textile workers began organizing. They organized a turnout or strike where they withdrew their savings en masse from local banks, causing a bank run. The women's organizing was, of course, painted as a type of betrayal of their femininity. If they were aggressive or demonstrated agency, the women were ridiculed as unladylike or as outside of the realm of true femininity or true womanhood. Nevertheless, the environment the women worked in and lived in fostered a strong communal bond that lent itself to unionizing. In 1845, 12 workers formed the Lowell Female Labor Reform Association, which quickly grew to over 500 members in just six months. Operated entirely by women workers, the association autonomously elected officers, conducted meetings, and spearheaded the mobilization of female laborers across the city while establishing uh, satellite branches in neighboring mill towns. Their initiatives encompassed the coordination of fairs, celebrations, and social events, as well as advocating the legislature to adopt a 10-hour workday. 
Historian Evelyn Nakato Glynn does one of the best jobs, in my opinion, in showing how reproductive labor works within capitalism. The complex system of organizing care is deeply rooted in different types of societal pressure. And so Glenn demonstrates how women, particularly poor racial minorities and immigrant women, have been forced to take on the duties of care work. And this pressure shows up in a variety of ways, from subtle hints to clear commands. But they all work together to restrict and direct women's choices. Consequently, the result is a perpetuation of quote-unquote cheap care labor, whether unpaid within family structures or underpaid informal employment settings. This setup reflects societal power dynamics, perpetuates economic gaps, and reinforces gender norms. By limiting women's choices, it ensures a constant source of cheap or unpaid caregiving, keeping things as they are. Recognizing and examining these controlling methods is crucial for breaking down entrenched inequalities and creating a fairer society where caregiving is valued and compensated properly. One way we can view this happening is through the expansion of private charity into the welfare state, which is largely built on the back of women's free or underpaid labor, either willingly given or coerced by the needs of a capitalist system. Historians Eileen Boris and Jennifer Klein show one example of this phenomenon in their study of home health workers. As part of the New Deal, the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA, placed unemployed women in a program that taught them to clean and care for households and children in households receiving relief where the mother was incapacitated. Home health care was touted as work for unskilled poor women. Later, becoming employed as a home health worker was positioned as part of welfare reform, as a way to move women off of public assistance and into economic self-sufficiency. At the same time, providing a home health worker to the elderly or an adult with disability was positioned as a way to allow these individuals to live more independently outside of hospitals or institutions. In this way, policy supporting home health work could achieve this kind of dual rehabilitation, i.e. getting one woman off of relief while giving another woman uh, or another person um, home health aid, right? Right. But the majority of women who were put into this type of welfare-to-work program were minorities, which entrenched prevailing ideas that women, particularly women of color, should serve in these helping roles for meager pay. Funding for care work for elderly and disabled clients was supported piecemeal through the Social Security program and then expanded through Medicare and Medicaid in the 60s and the 1970s. However, states were liable for substantial portions of this funding, which made revenue streams unreliable, particularly during times of recession and budget cuts, and were particularly vulnerable to the rise of conservatism in the 1980s and 1990s. Privatization through third-party vendors who hired home health workers as independent contractors further mystified the work of home health aides as they were barred from worker benefits and were neither employees of the state, although states issued the funds, employees of the contractors because they were independent contractors, nor employees of the person they cared for. Yet they worked for all three in varying ways. This made organizing among the workers 
even more difficult. So stepping back a bit and looking at the global economy, we can see that the current interconnected global economy also relies disproportionately on the labor of underpaid workers. And the majority of this work is performed globally by women, right? So a quick look at the garment or fast fashion industry is an easy way to see what we're talking about in that instance. Perhaps many students of U.S. history are familiar with the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire of 1911, or fans of the show, since Elizabeth did an episode on that, not too, I mean, many years ago, actually. It was a very long time ago. We've been doing this podcast for too long. Yeah, it seems like yesterday, but... It, it does feel like yesterday, and yet... <laughs> Narrator, it was not. It was not. So the 1911, that Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire killed 146 workers, all young women, and spurred a modest movement to enact safety measures in the New York City garment district. Of more recent memory, the 2013 collapse of Rana Plaza, an eight-story building housing numerous garment factories and a shopping center in Bangladesh, resulted in the tragic death of over 1,100 workers. Again, most of those workers were young women. Despite increased social awareness following the incident, sweatshops and hazardous working conditions persist as ongoing issues. Sweatshops in Bangladesh or Vietnam, among other places, have large numbers of unsafe garment factories, which are tied to multinational corporations that move their operations overseas to lower costs and increase profits. As in the women working in the Lowell cotton mills, this female labor force was viewed as replaceable, as unskilled, and as cheap. And this has continued to the present, right? So, for example, during the 1970s and 1980s, developing countries adopted this export-oriented growth strategy uh, that was facilitated by multinational corporations seeking to transfer manufacturing operations to regions with lower wages. Governments in the North helped by encouraging investments in exporting without investing in other countries. These multinational companies started using a global sourcing model where they bought imports through contracts with independent suppliers in Asia and Latin America. In country after country, when these factories opened overseas, the workforce they hired was predominantly and sometimes overwhelmingly female. The massive hiring of women in these developing countries produces mixed and sometimes conflicting results. The wages these jobs provide can be both freeing and very unfair at the same time. Even though women's work is seen as something that can be easily replaced and not that important, it's also seen as crucial for taking care of families and keeping economies afloat. Even though the governments in developing countries wanted to boost export-focused manufacturing, they didn't necessarily plan for these world market factories to only hire women. But they did, and overwhelmingly do. Why is this? Well, creating an inexpensive workforce of women relies on how gender roles and practices work in the local job market. Furthermore, those types of jobs then become associated as unskilled or low-waged because of their association with gender. The value given to women's work in production is closely connected to how gender roles are seen in both practical and spoken ways. As time passed, a successful blending of a certain type of job, so seen as low-skilled, paid less, and sometimes risky, 
with a certain type of worker, i.e. a young woman with not much formal education or work experience beforehand, created a job market where the idea of work being seen as feminine didn't depend on whether the worker was male or female. It's another way jobs that are associated with women's work historically fetch a lower wage. So just think of teachers and nurses and service workers and garment workers. These jobs have become so gendered that even if a woman is not doing the job, the job itself is devalued because of its gendered association. As sociologist Jennifer Blair emphasizes in her essay On Difference in Capital, quote, what the cumulative weight of research suggests is that how gender matters in a particular location on the global assembly line is variable and contingent. That gender matters is not. So in these last few examples, we've talked about waged work, and I will return to women's wage labor in my episode, taking an even longer look, uh, stretching all the way back to the 14th century at women's continuous devaluation in white European and American economic systems. The gendering of wage labor in particular professions is an outgrowth, though, of the gendered reproductive labor and care work upon which America's capitalism was built and on which it still runs. From enslaved women's literal reproduction and enslavers' commodification of enslaved children, to the legally gendered valuation of Margaret Jones's and Frederick de Peister's respective care for their nieces, to the unpaid or underpaid care work expected of women, especially women of color, under the New Deal welfare programs. Reproductive labor was always and continues to be rendered invisible in our capitalist economy and society. Domestic labor is still largely disregarded by economics and politics, as well as mainstream feminism, which has judged women's empowerment based on their presence and influence in the workplace. Think of things like lean in. And this, of course, is achieved by paying less advantaged women to handle household and child care. Women are still engrossed in chores, though. The phrase, the second shift, which was first used in 1989 by sociologist Arlie Hochschild, is now widely used to refer to the fact that women are still disproportionately responsible for taking care of their families and raising children, even when they work full-time jobs and even when they pay for assistance. Furthermore, the majority of those who are employed to perform domestic labor or caregiving, such as cleaning houses or tending to elderly relatives, receive inadequate pay. Our current system prioritizes self-interest over compassion. Under patriarchal capitalism, individuals are incentivized to pursue personal gain, often at the expense of those dedicated to caregiving. Competition reigns supreme, overshadowing the importance of collaboration and the emphasis on individual rights often outweigh collective responsibilities. Moreover, family and community ties are often relegated to the sidelines, perceived more as recreational pursuits reserved for designated holidays. Wah, wah. So there's a bleak look at continuity for you. Uh, so now go out and smash the patriarchy. And capitalism. There you go. As always, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dig History or our Facebook group, join it, Dig History Pod Squad. If you have a comment or a question or want to share some kind words with us, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org. We love listener mail. 
If you're an educator, we've got a compendium of episodes you can use in the classroom and free teaching resources, including full lesson plans, on our website, digpodcast.org. And we realize that recent changes in curriculum to in states like Florida and Texas will complicate being able to use our podcast episodes in the classroom. So please reach out to us if there's something we can do to be helpful to you in your classroom. You'll also find full bibliographies and scripts for all of our episodes, as well as resources and a link to our swag store at digpodcast.org. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner-Mazarek, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Um, you can learn more about this if you check out, uh, what's her, her Ulrich's first name? Sorry, I've got a, a delay in my thing, so I can't hear you. Um, you don't even have it in the bibliography. <laughs> Googling. Laura, Laurel, Laurel Thatcher. Laurel Thatcher. Who were put in this type of work, uh, welfare work, in this type of welfare to work. Private To pursue, to pursue. Frederick de Pester, de Pester, Pester? I think I was saying Pester. De Pester, de Pester. I think you said Pester. Hoschild, is that how you'd say that? That's how I would say it, yeah. Uh, the typical work week also consists of... That is... Uh, that should go somewhere The largely female labor force... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, we have a delay. I know. Sometimes it makes you sound like you're talking like a chipmunk. Okay, so same with you. And I was like, what the fuck is she talking so fast? <laughs> better to put it at the moment so fuck it oh my god so much protection in this <laughs> sentence uh our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of noom they build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions medical issues and other personal needs so your plan works for you Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.